Hello and welcome to the Medieval Radio podcast. I'm Karen Calder, an alumna of the Cultural Heritage Studies Programme, which is part of the Medieval Studies Department at Central European University. This podcast is part of the occasional series, New Faces, New Ideas, in which we talk to current PhD students about their research and where it might lead them. Today, I'm with Jason Snyder, a third year student whose research is focused on part of the defensive systems along the River Danube that were made in response to the Ottoman invasions in the early 15th century. He has a long-standing interest in the history and organization of the Teutonic Order. Having completed a military career with the US Army and followed several jobs aiming to return to scholarship, Jason received his MA in Medieval Studies at the Central European University in 2019. He's now researching for his doctoral thesis. Jason, welcome to the Medieval Radio you faces new ideas. Thank you. Your research subject, which I've mentioned, but the title is a military analysis of the entire Iron Gates castle system from 1429 to 1437. What prompted you to research this specific subject? Uh, well, um, I've always been uh, interested in the Teutonic Order and the history of the Teutonic Order. Coming from the United States, the main focus that you get in your main exposure to medieval history is from either France or England, especially England. And I was always interested in things that are um, exotic. So the Teutonic Order being based in Prussia seemed very exotic to me, and which is now located in uh, northern Poland. I had learned that they, uh, whenever they prosecuted warfare, they preferred to do it in the wintertime because the land that they, they were located in, there were several regions where they were swamps and rivers. And so to be able to cross easily with a large force, wait until the swamps and rivers had frozen over, and then you could go um, travel over those. And also it's easier to track or uh, enemy through the snow because there's footprints and things like that. So I was always interested in that. And then when I went back to school and finished getting my BA degree, I was looking around for places that would allow me to continue my studies on the Teutonic Order. Luckily, my uh, advisor at my um, undergraduate university, she suggested that I try Central European University. And so I wrote to the head of the department and she advised me to t contact Dr. Yosef uh, Laszlowski, who is now my current advisor. And he told me that there was many opportunities here at CEU to study the Teutonic Order because the Kingdom of Hungary has had a couple of instances where they've had to deal with the Teutonic Order and use the Teutonic Order to um, help them defend their kingdom. Uh, the first time was in Burzenland, which is in the very easternmost uh, Carpathian Mountains. And this was during the 13th century. And that only lasted a, about a decade. And the Teutonic Order was kicked out of the Kingdom of Hungary that first time. And immediately they moved from Hungary to Prussia. And that's when they started building their state. Prussia was immediately coming out of their Hungarian experience. And the part that I'm focusing on is the second time that they were brought into the Kingdom of Hungary. 
And this one is very obscure. Even scholars from the, of the Teutonic order don't really know about this. So this is an area of interest that has a lot of growth as far as discovering new things. Um, once Dr. Leslovsky told me about this, I jumped at the chance to actually uh, try and, and study the uh, expedition, which was sent from the Teutonic state down to the kingdom of Hungary into the Iron Gates, which is a gorge system um, created out of two mountain ranges clashing together, the Carpathians and the Balkans. And when they come together at the river Danube, it's almost like they bumped their heads and then dropped straight into the river. There are huge sections of it where you have straight cliffs dropping down into the water. It's, it's an amazing, beautiful place. And they were given castles um, in this area to defend. And that was my inspiration. So you've talked about the Teutonic Order, and we know they were formed to support Christian crusaders in the Holy Land. Where were their recruits coming from? Who were they? Well, um, the Teutonic Order was actually started in the Holy Land as an alternative uh, to the other two major military orders, the Templars and the Hospitlers. The other two major military orders were French-speaking. The German crusaders coming with the uh, Holy Roman Emperor, um, Frederick Barbarossa, and they felt that they weren't being treated fairly and, and equally to the French-speaking crusaders. So they felt that there was a need, especially at the Siege of Acre, that they start a German hospitaller order for German speakers. And this started the recruitment from German-speaking lands um, into the order, especially uh, in northern lands in Germany. You have the Hanseatic League and the Hanseatic cities, which were joined together in a league um, to set up trade between the northern German cities and a few other places in the, along the Baltic coast. It was easy to tap into these, these trade systems to go to these cities and recruit people from these northern German towns. It was basically created to solve a problem of making a German-speaking rather than a French-speaking new order. And it was started originally as a hospitler type order, which means that they helped to protect not only um, crusaders, but also to the sick and injured to take care of them in hospitals, which is what a hospitler order does. As they started creating a state in Prussia, state building was actually a more, um, more their main purpose. They, they shifted from um, taking care of the sick and injured to crusading to actually just starting their own state and expanding their state. Based on your research proposal, it was the Holy Roman Emperor Sigismund of Luxembourg who employed the Teutonic Order to protect the Hungarian kingdom and prevent the Ottoman army from crossing the Danube. As you say, they were employed to the Iron Gates, which is a gorge. Now, to me, this seems the most unlikely location for an army to cross a river. Why did Sigismundis deploy the knights to the Iron Gates? Militarily, that area, even if it was a pure gorge, it creates a bottleneck. And to control people coming into the Kingdom of Hungary, um, you need to control the river because the Danube is a major river. So running from east to west, what they were trying to control was armies coming up the river 
and going into the Kingdom of Hungary that way. So the castles were set on, um, for the most part, they were set on a thin strip of, of land that went through just at the river edge so that it was possible to build castles on the river. And there were certain points where literally the mountains crashed straight into the water and it was impossible. So you really didn't have to worry about defending things coming in. But if you controlled the river at several points, you controlled the river entrance. But there were in some of these places within the gorge system itself, especially the, the flatter valley areas, there are uh, trails, major trails that can hold a large invading army into the interior. So these castles were always meant, also meant to um, control the entrance into the kingdom of Hungary through these trails, through the mountains, and then into the interior onto either the Great Hungarian Plain or into Transylvania, which was a very rich area as far as mining and trade. Um, so it was very important to control this section of the river. Yes, I hadn't realized that the location of the castles right by the edge of the river was to control trade up and down the river. I just assumed that castles are on top of a hill and therefore would control everything. I see the point now. Was it that no one was quite expecting the Ottoman army to follow the trails? They were expecting them to take a boat up the river. Actually, everything was expected. They expected both possibility of river invasion, but also to go up the trails because beginning in 1429, the Ottoman forces had been sending minor raids up, up into the interior through this area. So this area was being probed by the Ottoman army and they were expecting something to happen. So three of the castles given to the Teutonic order in the Iron Gates were actually castles further up into the valleys along three of these major trails. Um, these actually were more designed to financially support the riverine castles, but they also did have a small contingent in each castle that were supposed to patrol these valleys that could support an invading army, a large invading army. Now, I just pick up on something you said there, that they had three castles allocated to them that were supposed to supply whatever the Teutonic Order needed. And it's always said that an army runs on its stomach. Could you explain something more about the logistics and the supply lines between the three castles and into them? Sure. Basically, um, there's a document that belongs to the Teutonic Order. It's, it's in their archives in Berlin. Um, one of these talks about all of the duties and um, payments that were given to the Teutonic Order to help support the expedition there in, in the Iron Gates. Basically, for these three castles, the tenants who were assigned to these castles were supposed to provide things like uh, wheat, oats, cattle, sheep, um, even bees and pigs. So they were set up to support them, both in terms of trade, but also to actually feed the, the expedition itself. When the deal was set up between King Sigismund and the Teutonic Order to send an expedition, Sigismund had said that he was going to provide them with a large income uh, to su actually support their effort there in the Iron Gates, um, to include the income of the gold and silver mint in Transylvania, 
um, half of the revenues of the salt quarries in Transylvania, all of the, the revenues from silver customs in Transylvania, um, grain payments from a certain district in central uh, Hungary, a large portion of grain were coming in from that area because it was a very vast expanse which is much larger than in these valleys where these three castles in the interior were located. Um, there wasn't a lot of space there to grow um, crops. So it had to be imported from further into the interior of the kingdom of Hungary. And also they were given fishing rights, which also included the uh, sturgeon trade, which is a very lucrative trade in this area during the medieval period. So that was also to feed, but also to provide income for the Teutonic order on their expedition in the kingdom of Hungary. And resupply was supposed to be um, mostly done by the river. So if something was coming to these castles, the easiest way to get to get goods and uh, monies to these castles was to travel along the river. And each castle on the river had boats that were both river boats that were meant to uh, not only defend, but also to carry uh, goods as well. That from Sigismund is a major financial investment. That makes me think he had employed the Teutonic Order. He had given to them these extra castles to feed, supply, fishing rights, feeding rights. Was the Teutonic Order the best solution to the problem or the only solution to the problem of preventing the Ottoman invasion? Uh, that's a good question, actually. Um, um, strategically, the Iron Gates lies between two flanks. One is Wallachia on the east, under the control of the, the ruler of Wallachia. And then the other on the other side of the Iron Gates to the west is um, the despotate of Serbia. And the linchpin is the Iron Gates. The Iron Gates itself, both sides of um, the flanks, Wallachia and Serbia are wide open plains. So the only place that connects those two is the Iron Gates, which again is a bottleneck uh, militarily. And if you control the bottleneck, you control what goes into the bottle itself. So um, strategically, the Iron Gates was a very key linchpin to the defense of the Southern Kingdom of Hungary. Prior to the Teutonic Order being brought into the Iron Gates, Sigismund, uh, actually had a very successful general of his, Filippo Scolari. He's a Florentine noble, but he becomes an incredible general um, beginning in the 1410s all the way through to his death in 1426. He helps to build this castle defensive system in the Iron Gates, but he also helps Sigismund fight against the Hussites the Hussite Wars are going on at the exact same time. And that probably partially explains why Sigismund had a divided um, focus. Sometimes he was focused on the Hussites. Sometimes he was focused on the Ottoman problem. And that might have also um, caused some of the problems down in the Iron Gates. He was just not completely all the time focused. Um, but when Scolari died in 1426, Sigismund was left with a big problem because the Ottomans were attacking, attacking, attacking his southern frontier, and he needed someone to do it. And because he had a very close uh, advisor and ambassador from the Teutonic Order, 
his name was Niklaus von Redwitz, Sigismund turns to him and the Teutonic Order as an answer to his problem. Um, there's this apocryphal story about Sigismund taking Redwitz aside, making him get on a horse, and then they both alone ride out into the wilderness to discuss a new problem that Sigismund needs help with. And he kind of ambushes uh, Redwitz and says, you know, I've got a problem. I want you personally to help me. And I want you to convince the Teutonic Order to bring a contingent down to the Iron Gates to protect my southern border. So after maybe three years of negotiation and planning, that's when the Teutonic Order was brought in. It was to solve a problem quick and to solve a problem using people who knew how to um, prosecute a war, especially a crusading war, which is basically what this was. Um, the Teutonic Order was used to fighting non-Christian forces. So it made sense that way. Yeah, that would make a lot of sense and probably better to deploy them against the Ottomans rather than against the Hussites. Yes, but the, the Teutonic Order was no stranger to uh, fighting other Christians. In fact, um, up in Prussia, their main enemies were um, first the Prussians and then they were subdued. And then it became the Kingdom of Poland and the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. The Kingdom of Poland was already Christian, but that didn't bother the Teutonic Order that much. But the Grand Duchy of Lithuania was pagan until the 1380s when it converted to Christianity. And that became a problem technically for the Teutonic Order, but they didn't seem to mind. They tried to get around it and claim that the, the conversions just weren't true conversions. So they kept fighting anyway. So they were used to fighting non-Christians. An interesting bunch. I can see why you're finding them fascinating. Yes, absolutely. They are really fascinating. Um, so the Teutonic Knights were there to guard, to protect the river, both up and down the river and the river crossings. And for this, they had a number of military points, castles, watchtowers within the Iron Gate system. In terms of the communications and the chain of command, how were these positions structured? So uh, what you had were um, a few larger garrisons, larger forces um, stationed in these bigger fortresses, especially between the two ends. The one on the eastern end was Severine. Um, and that was garrisoned with about 200 uh actual men and 40 bowmen. And on the Western side, you had the, the garrison of Sandlaudislauen, uh, which had 400 men and 56 bowmen. There were a few bigger ones in between, but the majority of these castles were actually more like watchtowers. There were stone towers and they were set up basically to monitor both the river and also entrances in on these trails going into the interior. Um, they were never meant to actually withstand uh, an actual siege because these were tiny. Um, the average was about maybe 20, 30 men in each of these watchtowers, which is basically enough to send out uh, maybe a patrol or two to watch the river um, in blind spots, but also have enough for a rotation of guards on the top of these towers to actually watch out and make sure along the river itself um, if there's any problems coming from across the river itself. 
the thing about uh, castles themselves, um, where they're located in the landscape actually can tell you about what their major function was. Um, so I mentioned uh, St. Laudislauen, and this is the only castle that's actually located on top of a hill. Um, this was set up for a different purpose. A castle set on a hilltop, you can tell that it's meant more for a defensive purpose because it's harder to get to them. It's harder to attack because you have to go uphill and they're shooting down and they're defending downwards. So they have the defensive advantage. The problem is that it's harder to bring um, supplies up and also it's harder to deploy troops to send out troops from them because especially with um, a place on a hilltop like St. Ledislauen, you have to go on switchback trails to get down to the end so that there's no straight trail down to the bottom of the mountain to get to the river. So it takes a lot longer um, to send troops from this a castle like this than say a castle that's set on uh, the river itself. And those are meant to be more offensive because it's easier to deploy troops, use troops on the river itself. Where a castle is constructed within the terrain tells you what it was meant for. And do you know anything about the chain of command? When the Teutonic Order first came in, um, they brought in the command structure that they had developed in the uh, up in Prussia in the Ordenstadt. So each castle would have a garrison commander and a deputy commander, and then you would have minor officials like a fishmaster, uh, someone who was in charge of all the fishing for that specific castle. You'd have a cookmaster, you would have a cellarer. Um, these were serving brothers. The thing that was kind of peculiar about this expedition was all of the forces that were actually meant to fight were actually mercenaries, which is kind of a strange thing for the Teutonic Order. Um, they did use mercenaries back up in Prussia, um, and they did have experience using mercenary troops. But this is kind of rare. The whole entire garrison is a mercenary force for each castle. It's, it's kind of a strange situation. The, the commanders and the people in charge are serving brothers of the Teutonic Order, but the actual fighters were uh, mercenaries. And particularly, we know that um, a lot of them came from Bavaria because uh, Nikolaus von Redwitz, the commander of the uh, expedition, has to go back to Nuremberg to try to recruit more mercenaries um, to help during a problem. So we know that he's recruiting the men from that area, but uh, yeah, um, it's a mercenary force. But that's quite unusual um, because even Machiavelli in his book, The Prince, says that mercenaries are not the people to use. So there was less respect for mercenaries why was it the Teutonic Order here was using mercenaries? Right. So this was the time of the rise of mercenaries actually in uh, Western Europe. You had the free companies that had started to form as a result of the conflict in the Hundred Years' War between England and France. And once the major army from England decided to go back, there were some captains within that army decided to stay um, he convinced a number of soldiers and, and fighters to stay with him and actually form free companies. And they would go on raids nominally for the, the king of England, but just keep raiding throughout France. And um, these companies became 
more uh, trained as to fight as a unit. And after a while, um, some of these companies were invited by people on the Italian peninsula to come in because they heard about how uh, professional they were and how well organized they were. They're inviting these free companies to come into the Italian peninsula to fight. And then you get a whole century of fighting with nothing but mercenary armies. So um, there was a rise of the mercenaries and the end of feudal levies at this point in time. And also at this point in time, the Teutonic Order didn't have enough, a large enough fighting force to actually send down to uh, the Iron Gates because it was already fighting against Poland, Lithuania. And they also had a little bit of a hand in the Hussites. So they were kind of spread thin. And also when Filippo Scolari was defending the Iron Gates, he was using mercenaries as well. So I believe that that the system was already set in place that there were already mercenaries here and that they just need to replenish as, as mercenaries either left or died or whatever. So that's part of my research is to actually look into um, what was the situation as far as the mercenaries go in the transition from Scolari's defense of the Iron Gates and the Teutonic Order's defense. But we definitely know that the Teutonic Order were using mercenaries because we have the payment lists that tell how much each type of soldier is and how many soldiers are garrisoned. But also, um, we also have documents that state that the, the Teutonic Order is repairing some of these castles and also building a few new ones. But we never know specifically uh, which ones. There, there, there's not enough uh, documentation that actually states where and, and which ones are going under construction with the exception of maybe one. But compared to other, uh, other studies within the Kingdom of Hungary, the amount of documents for this expedition are huge compared to the documentation for other um, things within this region. So um, we're, in some ways we're fortunate, but in other ways, it's still not quite enough to give us a full picture. So we have to use other, um, other multidisciplinary techniques um, like archaeology to fill in the gaps. But that's a challenge because a lot of the Iron Gates now are flooded for hydroelectric dams. Yes, uh, that is correct. The one that specifically affects the castle system within the Iron Gates is the Iron Gates 1 hydroelectric dam. And the nature of a dam is to stop the, the flow of water of a river and everything upriver from that dam begins to flood and inundates the land. So some of these castles and castle locations have been um, forced either fully or partially underwater. Um, there's a few where you can actually see them just barely poking out of the top of the river. And then there's other places was completely covered over now. And this actually makes it hard to know the locations of some of these, these castles. But I believe that um, I'm at the point in my research where I actually can point to you on a map and say, this is where this castle was located. This is where that castle was located. So I believe that I'm now in the point of my research where I, I can pinpoint where these locations were. Wonderful. We know that the Ottomans did invade. We know they crossed the river. But with this great defense of the Iron Gates, why did it fail? So... The historical background um, of this failure, um, basically, 
all falls down to the year 1432. The Teutonic Order had been in the Iron Gates preparing for about two years. In 1429, a truce was signed between the Ottomans and the Kingdom of Hungary for two years to leave each other alone and not attack each other. So when the uh, Teutonic Order first comes into the Iron Gates, they're allowed two years of peace to rebuild, um, reorganize, because everybody knew that the Ottoman army was coming. They uh, had signed truces before between the Ottomans and the Kingdom of Hungary several times, but it was always, as soon as this treaty was done, the Ottomans were coming. In the year 1432, it began in January, um, uh, the Ottomans massed their forces on the western flank of the Iron Gates on the Serbian side. And then they decide immediately to go further west to Belgrade, attack the fortresses there. And um, they set up a siege. And by May or June, the siege is stalled. And the Sultan, Murad II, he himself has come all the way up into Serbia to take personal command. Even though there's no uh, number given as to the size of his army, it has to be a large army because no sultan would take personal control of a small force. They never did and they, they haven't. So we know that this was a large force. They try to take Belgrade, but as soon as the sultan comes up, he realizes that uh, it's pretty much impossible for them to, to go into the kingdom of Hungary that way. So immediately they decide to come and hit the Iron Gates. And they actually crash through the Iron Gates in 1432 in June. They ruin or capture three of the castles and they lay siege to St. Ladislauen. But they, they go up these interior trails. And by June 22nd, we get reports that they're at Targoviste, which is which is 300 kilometers from the Iron Gates. So there was a massive failure of the Iron Gates defensive system at this point. The Ottomans were unsuccessful in Belgrade, so that tends to suggest that the Serbian side of the defensive system worked, but they immediately crash into the Iron Gates and immediately crash through, which means that there's a severe weakness there. And that's what I'm trying to find out as to why there was a severe failure to the Iron Gates defensive mm. system and what happened. And that's what my dissertation is about. Um, because I've just discovered the locations of all these castles, my analysis is just beginning now. But I believe part of the problem, um, for example, on the eastern flank, the castle of Severin is actually located. Um, it's not actually located within the mountains proper of the Iron Gates. It's just to the east of it. And it's in a wide open plain. And so it's very easily to bypass this major fortification and then hit trails further up um, so that it's, it's very easy to invade from that section. Um, another problem is that I don't believe in, especially the central section, that uh, the fortifications were placed in a proper way close enough to be able to defend the two interior trails within that um, interior section and actually Given my research so far, I believe it's actually on these two interior trails that the uh, large army took to go in as far as Targoviste. So did the so Ottomans have good information? Yes, I believe what had happened was um, when they're besieging Belgrade, 
they're foraging for food and things, but they're also sending out scouts to look for other places to crash into the, uh, the defensive system. And what I suspect happened was some of these really good scouts had come and looked at the Iron Gates and then reported back to the Sultan that actually there's a better target. We need to switch and hit the line at the Iron Gates. And that is what they did. Which leads me wonderfully on to my next question, because you're now talking about military thinking, the way the army and the commanders have to look at the landscape and look at the problems and think about how to address them. In military thinking, how much has changed since the 14th century? Obviously, all the military hardware has changed. But I think more interestingly, in terms of military strategy and tactics, what is the same? What hasn't changed? As far as uh, changes go, um, actually hardware is probably one of the bigger drives to change military tactics and thinking because we've discovered in the 20th century that technology has gone so far that defensive lines no longer work. Uh, For example, the Maginot Line. The French felt that they could defend against any attacks from the German nation by setting up a system of fixed fortifications um, for a long stretch. But this was easily and immediately bypassed because of air power and um, fast tank deployments to circumvent these defensive lines. So technology definitely changes the way of thinking. As far as things being the same, um, on small scale, the way that you set up fortifications nowadays, um, you still have the same things in mind. You wanna make sure that you are close enough to your objective that you can properly defend while still not giving up any type of defense. Um, this is the same. This has always been the same, which is why you not only want to put your castle close enough to the trails to defend the trails, but not have to um, come out of the protection of your um, fortification. But even nowadays, you want to set your trenches close enough to the place wherever you're defending without having to actually, if there is a problem or you're fighting an enemy, having to get out of the trenches to properly defend that objective. I mean, there's there's basic military thinking as far as um, where you place your fortifications or where you place your fixed positions. Um, You've also got to think about supply lines for the troops. Exactly. Um, Logistically, um, it's the same. You want to be able to feed your troops. You want to be able to get them enough uh, ammunition. You want to make sure that you can um, supply them time on time because this affects morale. If you can't um, feed them enough and they're starving they're thinking more about you know my stomach is is rumbling rather than hey we're supposed to be here looking across the river to make sure no one's coming in and also the use of mercenaries as well uh, machiavelli makes a good point about um there is a problem with mercenaries um some examples where there are loyal but loyalty always comes into question with with mercenaries especially when the going gets tough but there's a trade-off with that, that they are professional. Um, they're really good at what they do on an individual basis. It's a question of being able to um, work together as a unit. That's, that can be a problem. If they were trained together, if you actually hire a mercenary unit that has trained together and knows each other, 
then it, it actually is effective. But it's, it's a, a very, and Machiavelli states this, it's, it's a very um, dangerous situation. It's interesting that he identified it all those years ago. Mercenaries being a problem is as old as the ancient world. I mean, it's, it's been around for a while. Yeah, I guess. Jason, you're working towards your PhD, which hopefully will be completed and defended and successfully won. What do you plan to do from there on? I've discussed that with my advisor, and um, we both feel that there is more work to be done on this topic itself than um, will fit in a single dissertation. There, there's like at least maybe a decade of more work. So I plan on continuing to work on uh, the expedition, but also this region of, the, of what is today Romania and Serbia. So hopefully in a few years, we can repeat this interview and see where everything's got to. Maybe, hopefully. As a final point, we both had careers before coming into CEU to study. I found the CEU experience awe-inspiring. How did you find it? I actually uh, really like the CEU, especially the medieval studies department. The faculty were, are incredible. Um, the staff are incredible for the department. Um, I like the way that the, the classes are set up. Uh, a lot of European students um, coming into this system is different from what they expect or what they're used to. But um, I actually believe that the, this system is, is more conducive to being able to not only develop thinking and problem solving, but also being able to function as an academic well after you get your degree. I've really also enjoyed my uh, time here at CEU. Jason. Thank you so much for sharing all your research and ideas with us. It's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you for having me. 